there is a lovely quality of stillness in the space that it's very sweet to enter into. And uh, I'm very aware that some of you have been practicing here now in a very sustained way for two weeks or more for some of you. And some of you have relatively recently arrived or returned. And for those of you who perhaps just came yesterday, I think there's a few, um, welcome. I hope you're settling in well and easefully. I'd like to speak this afternoon about what I for myself, considered to be one of the most kind of useful and also perhaps challenging areas of practice. And that's really learning what it means to to trust in being and to release ourselves from the very habitual and powerful tendency to be engaging in what for the purposes of this talk, I'll contrast with being by calling doing. There's an interesting thing that happens, I think, often at the end of a meditation period, which some of you will, I imagine, recognize. I don't know, because I, I'm not sort of uh, sitting with you as a group through the days. But certainly on most retreats, it's very common that at the uh, end of a sitting meditation, there's a group of people there sitting, you know, still, relatively still, through the 45 minutes or longer, and then the bell sounds, and there's this sense of, <sighs> sort of like, whew, made it, done it, got there, somehow, some sense of release, or of relief, that takes place. It's in a certain way, a sort of a short-term aversion of liberation and that we get liberated from the circumstance of the sitting, so to speak. And yet, it's always curious, isn't it, to reflect on what is it that happens in that moment. Can you hear at the back? I can't. You can't. Um, have we got volume? Can we have some more? The large, the large one there, that's it, that's your the PA volume. Turn it up a little. How's that? Is that better? A little more? A little more? No, that, that's up. Yep. How's that? Yeah? That's good. Good. Okay, someone's turned it down. Maybe someone speaks a lot more loudly than me. How much of that first bit did you hear? I'm not going to repeat it all, but did you get any of it? At the back? Ah, okay. It's oh, impressive. Okay. Okay, so just maybe, um, not necessary to recap, but there's this, this process whereby we, we see we become engaged in a form of activity which we can kind of recognize by the sense of relief or release that takes place when it comes to an end. And the ending is as such, or in this context, the ending of a sitting period or a meditation period of some form. And that's telling us something, if that's what we experience, it's telling us something about a way in which we're making a kind of effort um, that 
when the bell rings, we get to stop making. It might be the effort to not move my posture even though I'm uncomfortable. And now, ha, huh, I can change my posture. I won't disturb anyone. No one will think I'm a bad meditator if I move my posture after the bell. Or it might be the, you know, the, the effort. And these aren't unwholesome efforts to, um, to just really continue to sustain the attention, to bring the attention back, to hold, focus or steady the heart and mind in contact with our experience, whether it be a particular chosen object or more with the, the flow and movement of what's, what's arising and passing in each, in each second. But often what's going on in that that adds to the, the wholesome element of engagement, of effort, of, of I'd say, virya, the, uh, that, that sort of uh, quality of energy that we do need to bring to our practice, is a, a kind of an activity we could call doing, which is trying to somehow produce a result out of what it is that we're engaging with. And it's really understandable. But it actually isn't that helpful. So one of the the great and I would say ongoing lessons and practices, learning what it means to trust in being, in in a a non doing orientation to practice, but not just to practice, but in fact equally a non doing orientation to life. And this is not easy. It's not easy at all for most of us because we experience what I think you would maybe recognize as the sense of a need to do something so often. We, we're very rarely comfortable with nothing to do, most of us at least. Um, and if we have nothing to do, we <clears throat> might even make doing nothing into a something we're now doing. Am I really doing well at doing nothing? That... Uh, Happens quite uh, easily, I've found, in practice sometimes. And the, the characteristic, what reveals this process of doing is going on, is that, or the need to do, is that it always involves some kind of activity or experience or something that can be measured or quantified. And then, having measured or quantified it, we can compare it to something else, to let us know, am I improving or am I regressing? Am I succeeding or am I failing? So we might um, have some, whatever it might be, some particular thing we're measuring. And we use that, again, habitually and initially, for most of us, unconsciously, but pretty (laughs) incessantly, I would say, we use that to, to build up, to create, to establish or support a sense of self-worth, of okayness, or rightness, acceptableness. Might go so far as to be even, you know, lovableness. But some way in which the sense of value is dependent upon performance. And from that sense of value, we seek to gain acceptance or recognition or validation from others. So what we're looking for a lot of the time in the doing, in the activity, is trying to somehow find a sense of okayness in ourselves. 
And yet it's something that becomes dependent upon results and achievements. And this is a you know, an understandable thing that we've learned when we're young, perhaps, that we get very different responses from those around us who we care about, who we hope care about us, according to what we do or don't do, how we perform or don't perform, whether we succeed at, you know, successful potty training by whatever age we're supposed to have done that, or little things that aren't little at all, big things. And so there's this often unconscious process of trying to feel good about ourselves that even goes on in the context of teachings where we're invited to let go of identifying with experience. You know, we start to wonder, how good am I doing at this process of letting go of identifying with experience? Am I doing as well as the other people? Or are they doing better than me? Have I done well enough that my teachers will be impressed? Or... My friends will be impressed when I tell them when I go home. You know, how much of the self have I managed to let go of so far? You know, is it enough? Have I done enough? And those kinds of thoughts, which we might notice, or we might not think them in quite such a gross or blatant way, but we might nonetheless feel as a kind of a, a kind of a pressure. And doing often is associated with some sense of pressure. This wish to to feel okay about ourselves is premised or based on the idea that what we are, that who we are, arises from our activities. That who or what we are and the value we can associate it with, with it, we can derive from it or that we can know in it, in being this, that we are, that the value arises from our activities. And yet, these activities are something that we, you know, as we know, we kind of construct them into a role. We have a sense of this is who I am because this is what I'm doing. Although, clearly, roles are constructed agreements. They depend upon other people going along with them. And they don't always. It's sort of like, you know, here, primary role at this moment is, you know, talking about the Dharma, so it's the role of the teacher. And it only works if other people sit there listening because if I were to go and sit down somewhere and start talking about this and there was no one there, I wouldn't be being a teacher, would I? That wouldn't be the role. That would be you know, possibly someone who's a little confused or we need to be worried about. you know. Um, or likewise, if I sat down here and started talking, everyone else started getting up, walking around, making cups of tea, having a chat, doing some walking meditation. Um, then also, well, it wouldn't really be that role, would it? It only arises in a certain context, in a certain situation. And yet, there's so much that we take from how we are in our activities, which are in a way the the smaller parts, or the, the roles which our activities make up or create for us, we use that as a basis of somehow trying to find something which they can't actually give us. So... It's useful to reflect on the primary activity that's going on here. Which, in terms of, okay, me sitting here talking, at the moment, you listening. But most of the time, at least I hope, meditation. And how easily and quickly we start getting involved in this process of trying to be a good meditator. Has anyone noticed that? That we kind of assess and measure our success, our ability, and our comparative worth in relationship to other people 
at being a good meditator. You know, I came in early. I sat a bit longer, longer than them. Or, you know, God, they sit longer than me. Or they seem to be more quiet or calm. Or I seem to be more quiet or calm or concentrated. And those kinds of thoughts, those sort of ideas arise for us. If we want to be a good meditator, then of course we've got to do good meditation, whatever we think of that, whatever that's supposed to be. And a lot of the way we can struggle in practice is around the assessment of that, whether have I done it well enough to be good at it, or have I done it so poorly that I'm bad at it. And the wish to kind of locate ourselves in that way and to attract towards ourselves some confirmation or affirmation about our okayness. Measuring ourselves, measuring others, seeing whether we go up or down in comparison. It doesn't really help doing it just with our experience. We always tend to set up a comparison with other people or with ourselves as we were or ourself as we should be. Like, I'm doing better than I was yesterday, I'm more concentrated more heartful, had more insights this morning than yesterday, or less. It always tends to go that way in terms of the doing. I could sit for 60 minutes yesterday, I could only sit for 48 now. You know? And on my last retreat, see the, the tendency to compare. And the way in which we so often feel good about ourselves when the comparisons are positive and do not feel at all good when the comparisons are negative. It's like sometimes we think, well, to be a good Buddhist practitioner, I shouldn't have any negativity. The Buddha said, cultivate loving kindness, even when you're being sawn in half by bandits using a two-handled saw. Now, that's a pretty uh, you know, committed expression of practice, one would think. And so here am I. It annoys me when someone you know, sort of walks too quickly past where I'm doing my meditation. You know, that's got to count as pretty serious failure. It's not as if they're sort of attacking me with weapons. And here am I not filled with love and kindness. We can so easily judge ourselves according to ideas or values like that, or even more um, kind of understandable and yet tragically painful is the idea that somehow I'm not supposed to have a self, because the Buddha said we weren't supposed to have one, which he actually didn't say. But we sometimes take that kind of subtle distortion of his teaching and use it to somehow suppress or negate or attack the fact that we have a whole history and personality that comes up in all kinds of messing and embarrassing ways. And somehow a few days, weeks or years of meditation hasn't seemed to have got rid of it. And, and so again there's this, this kind of quite painful process of self-judgment that goes on that drives us if we're not conscious of it, if we're not aware of it that can drive us to try and perform, to try and succeed, to try and do well. And one of the classic places it goes on is around the degree of concentration that's available for us in our practice and our sittings. And of course this is something we talk about and you know we we encourage, we say, yeah, it's useful. You know, there's no such thing as um unuseful concentration it's always good it's always helpful of course it doesn't mean we always use it skillfully but in itself it's always helpful and it's always possible to have more 
And the interesting thing is that being a little bit more concentrated is always a little bit more pleasant and comfortable, and a little bit less the opposite. The experience that so many people tend to measure their practice with, and I don't know, maybe you don't do this, but uh, it's really common, is you know, how, for how long can I get my mind to be quiet? For how long can I get my body to be still? How much time duration? That whole measurement. It's not, an, it's not a coincidence that the experience of a calm mind and a still body is actually quite pleasurable. And we easily get attached to that pleasantness and think that that's what we're supposed to be doing or succeeding at. But it's equally important to recognize and to see that there are so many other qualities, many of which are not so easily measurable and therefore don't lend themselves so well to comparisons or for, therefore don't lend themselves to setting up a basis for evaluating ourselves. The quality of receptivity, how much we're willing to open to what's here, whether pleasurable, unpleasant or neutral. That quality is really hard to measure in a certain way. We can't say, I was receptive like this much and not receptive that much. In the way we can say, I was mindful for 10 minutes and then I spaced out for 20 minutes. It's not so easy to say that. Well, patience, interest, dedication, these kinds of qualities, we can't measure them so easy. We can see their value and their impact, but we can't measure them. And so often the kind of the more pressurized doing tendency goes towards what's measurable. And in that there's a looking for, a seeking for a positive reflection. A sense of, can I take something from this that lets me feel okay or good about myself? And at the same time as that hope for a positive reflection, a fear of a negative one. A fear that if I don't do well enough, at this, I'm somehow going to end up compelled to judge, criticize, or be harsh towards myself. And it's so painful when we're not conscious of it, when we're in the grip of it. It's so painful, often reported in the context of the work period. Now, how hard we try to do it well, some of us at least. How, how much we can be concerned about what, what others will think of our performance in the work you know, cleaning the floors or washing the vegetables or putting away the dishes or whatever we're doing, raking up the leaves, and that sense of I've got to do it well, and if I don't, people will notice and they'll think I'm whatever. Da da da. So that again, that pressure, that pressure. And the whole sense of self, the whole sense of ego, pretty much turns on this. That whole unhelpful, unskillful activity that we recognize as fundamental to the construction of suffering, the suffering that's, in a way we could say optional, but seems pretty prevalent a lot of the time, can be seen as that movement of an attempt to establish the sense of self as or in the way that it wants to be seen and felt and known. And because it's kind of scary to let go of that activity. Now I remember once um, at the old guy house, this was probably 20 years ago or so, um, 
there was a retreat going on in the house and I was in the kitchen, I can't remember what I was doing there. The kitchen was also the office and the um, dining room and the general hangout space. It was the only room that wasn't on retreat. It was, there, it was just one room that wasn't a, a silent space in the whole building. And Christina came in and she was looking very bright and excited. And she said, I had an insight, I had an insight. And she was obviously quite thrilled. And I remember thinking, gosh, Christina, you've been doing this quite a long time. You know, probably you've had an insight before. You know, this, this, this has got to be good. Um, and she said, and I don't know that I remember the words exactly, but it was basically, she said, oh, the only way that ego can survive meditation is to make it into an object. And what that's saying is, I understand, and we talked about what she was understanding there, is the sense of self, the personality activity, the reactive structures of self, survives meditation by making meditation into something that it's doing. So it's me that's doing this, and me that's succeeding or failing at it. And so rather than the process being one that actually shines the light on that whole activity in order to see it clearly and understand what's true about it and what's actually empty in it, it actually can become unconsciously subverted into another way of sustaining itself. And the meditative doer or the self who is becoming, become or becoming the meditator actually becomes the refuge in which that whole kind of cycle and process of becoming and of suffering is sustained and maintained within the whole meditative practice that's really oriented towards allowing us to see what's going on in that and actually become more free of it, to step out of it. So what does it mean just to be? What would it involve for us or ask of us to just be? To let go of, or at least to become aware of, and therefore not be so unconscious in the activities that become doing, the activities that are involved with measurements, with comparisons, with success and failure, with advancing or backsliding. One of the fundamental realities that we encounter in practice is that I can't do it. In terms of that whole sense of self, of I can't actually make this thing happen in the way that it wants to from the initial frustration of just trying to get one's mind to be a little bit quieter when it won't, to actually seeing that the whole journey, in fact, does not unfold according to our particular preferences or timetable. And the fact that it occasionally seems to is more of a coincidence than we want to really admit to ourselves. It's not absolutely a coincidence, because, of course, our engagement, our heartful and um, inspired 
practice is is something that we can honor and really take credit for and appreciate and yet the outcomes the particulars that show up in terms of both what's challenging and equally what's delightful isn't something we are doing in the sense of we are making that happen This mind that we have, for all its remarkable capacities, intellectually, it cannot get itself from a condition of unknowing, doubt and confusion, to certainty. We can't go that way through the intellect that wants to know, that wants to have answers, that wants to kind of be able to locate ourselves. So much of the doing is about being able to locate ourselves. The whole sense of what the Buddha talked about, conceit, the idea that I'm better than, less than, or, very interestingly, equal to. That's what the Buddha talked about, mana, conceit, is equally in the sense of I am equal to. Because it still gives us a sense of a location and posits an identity of whom that position is the characteristic, i.e. the position of equality, position of better than, or position of worse than. I don't, it's not what we normally think of as conceit. But in terms of Dharma teaching, to think I'm less than is a conceit. And the conceit is in the conceiving. Conceit is a conceiving of the sense of I in relationship to some kind of performance factor that's led us to or some kind of evaluation, comparison, or measurement that's led us to that up, down, or equal to position. And a lot of the movement into into doing, into busyness, is because simply being having no agenda, having no direction, no way in which we can measure where we're going and how fast we're getting there, is really unsettling and perhaps we could even say scary, occasionally terrifying, to not be able to locate ourselves, to not be able to say where we, me, I am in relationship to someone else or something else, or even in relationship to my own journey, my own path. Which, if we think about it, is a whole lot of, in a way, pictures of snapshots of where we were in the past and where we think we might be or hope we might be or fear we might be in the future. And we use those sometimes as the comparison points. But it's still a comparison. It's still a comparison. And simply being, letting go of that kind of agenda-driven activity throws us or or seems to expose us to the sense of not being in control. The fear of loss of control. If I'm not really working hard to be here, then I'll be all over the place, we might think. And yet, of course, where are we going to go? We might be here in a more distracted way. And so there's something useful in, in working with the tendency towards distraction but at the same time, seeing that there's something about being here 
that isn't being created by our activity. Whether supposedly or so-called successful or unsuccessful activity. Experience is ultimately not in our control. This is hard. I mean, it would be so different if, it were, if experience was in our control. It would be so different. But the reality is that it's not. And in terms of Dharma practice, allowing ourselves to come truly face to face, and in a way, heart to heart with that truth. To allow ourselves to see and to feel the impact of that reality. Experience is not in our control. And no matter how much activity we engage in, no matter how good we get at whatever skill or capacity or quality we're developing, that fact is not going to change. I mean, the fundamental things are just happening, aren't they? This body's breathing. It's many organs pulsing, pumping, and engaging in their activity that keeps us alive. Whether we feel restless and drowsy or bright and alert, there isn't a button we can just say, oh, I'll switch that one on. Now I'm alert and sitting after lunch. Or now it's 11 o'clock, I'll switch the drowsy button and now I can go to sleep. It's not like that, is it? And those are the things that matter to us. Being able to be awake when we want to be awake. Being able to sleep when we want to sleep. And this most sort of central element of what it is that we're engaged with, being awake, being present. Do we do that? Is that something that comes out of our sort of choice or control? Well, I mean, if it did, surely wouldn't we, having heard the teachings and come on a retreat, choose to be simply present and awake in all moments? Wouldn't we do that? And yet, that's not what happens. At least, that's not what that many people report happening. Certainly not what happens for me, necessarily. One is awake in all moments. And what happens in that moment? If you reflected on this, I wonder. In that moment when we've been unconscious, maybe it was the only moment, the only time it happened all morning, or maybe there's been a few of those moments through the day where we're unconscious. What is it that happens in the moment when we become conscious again? When we realize, oh. Because by definition, in the moment we were unconscious, we weren't really there. We didn't know what was happening. So we cannot have made ourselves conscious again. Because if we knew we were unconscious, we wouldn't have been unconscious, would we? It happens. It happens. It's like the light comes back on. And we can see again. We realize where we are. But until that moment, it was off. And how it came back on was none of our doing. And yet, of course, the intention to be awake, to be present, has a significant influence and a profound effect 
on the arising of that awareness, that or waking up into the moment that happens again and again. Or maybe just now and again, depending. We often will judge its absence or judge ourselves for the absence of that. But perhaps more useful to really appreciate the moment and the moments in which we reawaken. Because there's something miraculous, something incredible that happens. From unconsciousness comes consciousness. From lostness comes presence. Just it comes, it happens. We recognize it having happened as it happens. But it's not something we do. So we might say, wow, quite appropriately, every time it happens. But to really see that we're not doing this, that that which makes choices, tries to do things, it cannot do that. And yet somehow it happens. So much of what happens in our practice depends upon the conditions around us and within us that are, in a way, already here. And then we add to that our intentions. They are powerful conditions too, but they're not necessarily determinative of the outcomes. And it's kind of, we have to live on the, in that, that reality in terms of practice. It's like, yes, our intentions and our efforts and our engagement do make a difference, but they do not determine the shape, the flavour, the colour, the texture of the outcome, necessarily. And so we're asked to surrender to this, to open to this, to allow the truth of this to be seen and to be known. And to see that we can't do it. We can't make it happen. It's not a statement of hopelessness or helplessness. It's actually a expression of something that's profoundly relieving because it is in alignment with what's true. Seeing that things, experiences, outcomes, our practice equally as anything else, dependent on conditions. We can attend to some of those conditions when we see that actually eating a three-course lunch contributes to being sleepy after lunch. We might think, okay, I'll just have two course, you know, I'll just have two plates full of food instead of three. Maybe just one might be enough. You know, we, we see that and that does make a difference. And sometimes we can have no lunch and still feel drowsy in the afternoon. So it's not just that simple. So part of what we're asked to do is let go of the expectations or ideas we might have of where we should be by now, where we should have got to. To allow ourselves to be where we are, 
whether you're here in the second day of your retreat, the second week of your retreat, the second month of your retreat, just to let yourself be where you are. And yet to be deeply interested in this. Because nothing of what I'm saying is suggesting that we shouldn't be fully and wholeheartedly engaged with what's here and with the particular intentions we might be working with in our practice. Because in some practices, we need to be very particular about what we're doing and how we're engaging to support the development, the opening of certain qualities and capacities. But looking at that kind of larger context of how we hold it, am I doing this to somehow succeed or be okay or get it right? And what is it to put that down? To actually surrender to this life, to the way it is, again and again and again. This is actually the practice that frees the heart. The practice of letting go. It's a beautiful haiku that uh, translates only trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like this? So what we see in that invitation to just let the experience be, let ourselves be, let this life unfold, allow its own intelligence, its own lawfulness to reveal itself to us. We can see that the kind of result-producing activity we get engaged in, which I've been calling doing, doesn't actually offer us any guarantees of outcome. This is actually one of the fundamental elements of what the Buddha spoke of as dukkha, of suffering, of the way life is, that all our efforts to get it together doesn't necessarily result in it getting together, our life or whatever it might be. And so although just being doesn't give any results of outcome. It is peaceful. There's a relief and there's a release in just being. That all the doing, the busyness, the activity, the results-driven efforting also doesn't guarantee outcomes and it's painful. It's pressurized, it's frustrating and it's ultimately exhausting. And so much of the exhaustion we encounter in our practice and in our lives comes out of the attempt to coercively create outcomes. And it's actually us that the pressure impacts upon. Not the world. The world just does what it does. Circumstances and experiences just unfold as they do. So there's a kind of an image or a metaphor here for just observing this whole sense of me doing it. Getting to know what's going on here, the sense of me doing it. The meditation or doing the, you know, whatever we're doing. And it's, um, it's the images of, a, as if someone was on a ship on the ocean 
and uh, you know there's the wind and the waves and the currents and all of that and you know he's sort of steering this way and steering that way and after a while I'm starting to wonder why the boat doesn't always go the way I thought it should or the way I d- directed it to go and then going downstairs and looking um, in the engine room to discover that the steering wheel isn't connected to the rudder and all that time we're steering this way and sometimes it goes this way and then steering this way but we're going that way wondering what's going on you know it's oh huh okay what's happening here what's happening here it's like this this whole sense of me that arises with the belief that I'm doing it is a construction that's being laid on and over what's happening and so far as we believe it we somehow try and make that doing activity more successful than it can possibly be and I, I sometimes think it's a bit like a, a circus clown. After we go into the circus, you know, I've probably gone to the circus, you see some amazing acrobats on the flying trapeze doing these incredible, skillful, death-defying and inspiring, you know, performance. And then after they've gone off, the clown walks on with the big floppy shoes and the large nose and, you know, obviously very uncoordinated and says, that was me doing that, yeah, impressed, didn't I do good? And in the circus, we'd all know, oh, this is part of the show. The clown's pretending to be an acrobat, but pretty obvious that guy isn't going to be doing that sort of thing. And then it's actually kind of humorous and fun. Yet when the sense of self arises with me saying, I did it, it was me. I got really concentrated. I did good meditation. I attained or didn't attain insights or loving kindness or... um, concentration, that sense of me. We don't look at it and say, oh, that's part of the show. We think that's true. We think it's me. But it's just another one of the experiences arising in the big top. So what is it like to see the experiences arising here? Without abandoning one's aspiration, one's commitment, one's wholeheartedness, but to see it in the sense of, oh, this happened. Ah, this happened. Rather than, I did good, I did bad, I succeeded, I failed. It's like, oh, look what happened. Oh, look what happened. Oh, look, actually, on that occasion, I really believed it was me doing it. Huh, interesting. Wow, look, that happens too. It does. It does happen. That's okay. But seeing that that's what's happening is me believing that I'm doing it. Huh. How interesting. Because then it's going to be much less painful when we can't do it. When we realize, oh, actually it doesn't work. It's like, oh, actually, yeah, of course, that's how it is. To release ourselves from being trapped in success and failure, from taking credit or blame from experience. And the way we get into conflict with what is and we suffer in relationship to it based on whether or not it affirms the sense of who we want to be or affirms a sense of who we don't want to be. So much we wish for. Peace. For stillness. For calm abiding, well-being. And yet, this wish for the end of difficulty, of suffering, inwardly and outwardly, 
gives rise so much to an unconscious busyness with trying to get rid of it, trying to fix it, trying to avoid it. And that activity is actually much of the suffering. The real stillness, the real peace, the real transformation that we're looking for isn't about getting rid of experience. True stillness isn't about the absence of activity, inwardly or outwardly, not of body, not of mind. It's about an absence of the need for it to be other than as it is. An absence of the compulsion to change it, to fix it, to control it, to secure it in a certain way or shape or form. And this is not passivity. It's actually a remarkable effort required of us to not get in caught in and follow out or act out those patterns of doing, of striving, of busyness, of trying to get somewhere and measuring where we are against our hopes or our fears. It requires an incredible amount of courage to face the mystery of our life, the mystery of where we are right now, right here, that is uncontrollable. And yet, is immediately available. This moment doesn't need something done to it. It doesn't need us to do something to it. And as we start to release the compulsion and the urge to engage in that particular way, as we start to be willing to feel the sometimes unsettledness of what that's like or the discomfort of what it's like when we don't, something else starts to open up for us. And it's a, a real heart learning, I would say, a real understanding that isn't of the mind, an understanding of what this life is all about, that comes not from our activity or our doing. And I'd like to read a piece that... Um, I heard in a talk given by Ajahn Sachito, who's a uh, senior Buddhist monk, an Englishman, who's uh, the abbot of Chithurst Buddhist Monastery in West Sussex. And he, he once said, and this is a talk he gave in India many years ago when he was on um, Tudong, pilgrimage there. And he said, There is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is where we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says keep going past the area where you can't control it anymore and trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth, to honour truth, and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life.
So can we allow ourselves to rest in this, this condition that already is, but is perhaps not yet fully known, realized, recognized? Can we allow ourselves to trust in the beingness that we already are because we're here? Because we have this remarkable capacity for conscious awareness to be present, embodied, alive, awake human beings. What we're interested in discovering is not something produced by our activity. And we might be interested perhaps to ask the question in this context. Somewhat, we could say metaphorically, but not so far from the truth of things. It seems to me that we might ask, how does water get back to the ocean? How does it do that? And yet if we look, if we see, it's unstoppable in that movement. And in fact, it's its nature to flow, ultimately, back to the ocean. Through any number of different pathways, channels, and forms and shapes. But this is what happens to water. It flows back to the ocean. And to trust that it's the very nature of water to flow back to the ocean. We wouldn't feel we had to go out there and help it or make it happen. We might want to get out of its way. In the practice of non-doing, of learning what it means to trust in being, the returning is unstoppable. And it's not something that we do, and yet it happens to return to the natural, the original condition that the activity of doing obscures. That we don't see because we're so busy trying to make something of the experience or ourselves to make something out of the experience or into ourself. And so far as we're fascinated by, intoxicated by, or just simply engaged with that, it's hard to see beyond it. And though it may be scary to put it down, the fruit of that relinquishing, that releasing is is sweet and immediate.
So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. Just as we are, right here, right now. So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to understand and see more clearly the the power and the compulsive habit of doing, that we may release ourselves from it, to trust and to rest more deeply in simply being where we are, being as we are and what we are. To know this that is right here and right now. For our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.